Or you can turn to the book of 1 Peter. We'll be continuing in 1 Peter this morning. Uh, quick announcement, we have moved our essentials class. It's an elective that meets right now, 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings here at Southwood. Uh, it was scheduled to begin this morning, but we've actually delayed it two weeks to give people a little bit more time to sign up for it. Our, our essentials class, this is something that we, we want everyone who comes to Grace to go through at some point. Uh, our essentials elective, it walks you through the essential beliefs and practices of the Christian faith. Now, you may say, well, Blake, I've, I've been a Christian for a really long time. I kind of know that stuff. Well, we still want you to go through it because it not only teaches you what the beliefs and practices are of the Christian faith, it also teaches you how to explain them and defend them from Scripture, helps you understand why we believe what we do about the Trinity and about Jesus and salvation and eternal security and all the stuff that really matters in life. And not only does it teach you how to explain it and defend it, it it teaches you how to give it to other people, how to disciple young believers in these essential truths and practices. So uh, if you've not been through the essentials of the Christian faith, this semester would be a great time. You can sign up online or you can actually sign up out in the foyer. It starts September 24th, two weeks from now. I think I'm adding that up right. If Sunday morning doesn't work for you, we also have midweek electives that you could do if, if an evening works better. So um, anyways, Essentials of the Christian Faith, really encourage you to look at that. Well, the passage that we're looking at this morning, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, it's, uh, it's a very fitting passage for this particular weekend. In case you didn't catch it, yesterday was the ninth anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Uh, so it's a very somber weekend as we remember all of the pain and, and suffering that so many people went through nine years ago. 9-11 was, was actually just one instance of the pain and suffering that is so common in this life. All, all of us have been touched by pain and suffering. It's, it's unavoidable in this world. And, and it's to that dark and sad reality that Peter turns in our passage this morning. Look with me at verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Now, last week, if you were here last week, verses 3 through 5 was all happy stuff. It was all good news, all great stuff that God has given us. Uh, Peter turns to darker territory this morning. He talks about trials. We're going to see trials come out throughout the book of 1 Peter. It's a common theme. Now, here, when Peter speaks about trials, he's using that word very broadly. He's referring to anything in life that causes you suffering. Now, he uh, modifies it specifically, calls it various trials, or literally trials of multiple colors, basically anything in life that causes you to suffer. Now, later in the book, he's going to focus specifically on the trial of persecution, on on opposition that we face from the world because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. Uh, But here, he's, he's keeping it broad. He's saying anything that causes you to suffer, that includes persecution, it includes physical suffering, like pain due to illness. It in, includes emotional suffering, like the loss of a loved one. It, it includes um, just suffering due to stress, loss of a job, loss of, of finances, whatever it might be. Any suffering that you go through, that's what Peter's talking about this morning. Any type of trial. He says, in the variety of trials that we face in life, we greatly rejoice. And there's the rub. What does Peter mean? When he says that we greatly rejoice in the midst of trials. Be careful how you answer that question because uh, verse 6, depending on how you answer it, can actually become a source of incredible discouragement for believers going through trials. 
When Julie and I went through our trial of infertility for a number of years, unable to have kids, uh, this verse was actually one of my wife's least favorite verses in the whole Bible. She really disliked this verse because in the midst of that trial, she would read what Peter says and, and she, would, she would conclude that, well, Peter is saying that his entire audience, maybe all Christians everywhere, that every time they face the pain of trials, they rejoice, they're happy. Sounds even more like that when you read verse eight. Look at verse eight. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You read those verses and you picture these ancient believers that Peter's writing to and they're, they're suffering, they're in pain, they're in trials, but they're smiling and they're laughing and they're singing and they're skipping down the street. But wait a minute, I, I struggle when I face trials. I, I don't feel happy. I, I struggle and often I fail to rejoice in the midst of trials. Peter says, everyone, we all, we greatly rejoice in the midst of that trials. Where does that put me? Is there something wrong with me that I don't naturally greatly rejoice in the midst of trials? Well, now, in addition to the suffering I feel, now I've added on guilt and shame. But that was never Peter's intention. He does not mean verse six to create guilt or shame for the believer who's suffering. Actually, he means exactly the opposite. Let me walk you through verse six. Let me give you some keys to understanding what Peter's saying in this verse. Uh, first of all, we need to realize this, this idea of rejoicing, greatly rejoice. That's not about a feeling. That's about a choice. To rejoice is, is not a, a feeling. To rejoice means to choose to regard yourself as blessed even if your circumstances argue otherwise. It's a choice to be thankful to God, even if you don't feel thankful. It's not about emotion. It's not about feeling. It's about a choice. Now, actually, Peter does use an emotion word in verse six. What's that? Where's the feeling word of verse six? It's distressed. Distressed in Greek, it means to be saddened, to grieve. Peter's saying his audience, as they face trials, they don't feel happy. They feel grief. They feel sadness. If you're happy, if you're exhilarated by the thought of suffering, that, that's either masochistic or psychotic. That's, that's not good. That's not what Peter's talking about here. He's saying in the midst of trials, we're distressed, we grieve, we're saddened. Trials are hard. But in the midst of that grief, we greatly rejoice. And there's the rub again. Is Peter saying that his entire audience always greatly rejoices in the midst of trials? Is he saying that all Christians always greatly rejoice in the midst of grief? Where does that put me when I struggle, when I fail to rejoice? Well, the third thing that we need to remember about this verse to understand it, we're still in the introduction to the book. Usually books in the New Testament, they start out with an optimistic introductory prayer. And that's where we are in 1 Peter right now. This flows out of verse 3. Look back at verse 3 we read last week. How does it begin? Blessed be God. Peter is listing out reasons to be thankful to God. And he gets to verse 6 and he says, here's another reason to worship God. Worship God because he makes it possible for us to rejoice even in the midst of trials. That's Peter's point. He's not trying to heap guilt or shame upon the Christian who is suffering and struggling. He's trying to do exactly the opposite. He's trying to encourage you. He's trying to help you in the midst of your suffering. Peter knows suffering is hard. Peter knows it is incredibly hard to rejoice in the midst of trials. That's, that's one of the hardest things in life to do, to choose to be thankful in the midst of pain and suffering. Peter knows it's hard. 
So the whole rest of the passage, verses 7 through 12, are filled with encouragement for the suffering believer. They're filled with motivation. How can we rejoice in the midst of trials? Peter tells you how, verses 7 through 12. He gives you four reasons why it's possible and actually sensible to rejoice in the midst of trials. He gives us four pieces of motivation. That's what I want to focus on now. We've gotten the first one in verse 7, but I actually want to go to verse 6 and pick it up again there. First reason to rejoice in our trials. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Actually, verse 7 gives us the first two reasons. We're just going to focus on the first half of the verse. It starts out with the words, so that. That tells us that the beginning of verse 7 is a result of verse 6. If you rejoice in the midst of your trials, the result is proof of faith. Now, what does that phrase mean? Let's look at at the parts. What does Peter mean by faith here? Now, Peter uses uh, that word in a range of meanings in his writings. Faith can mean simple belief, just to believe the gospel. That's how it's used in verse 8. But here it means something broader. Not just believe the gospel, but walk in faith with Jesus. Peter's talking about the life of faith. Believing Jesus, depending upon Jesus, loving Jesus, being devoted to Jesus, being obedient to Jesus. The whole thing, that's what Peter's talking about, our life of faith. Now, what is this proof idea? Is Peter saying that we prove that we are Christians by rejoicing in trials? And if you don't, if you don't rejoice in trials, you prove you're not a Christian. Is that what Peter means? Well, no, that's, that's not actually what the word is getting at in Greek. You, you get a really good clue from the analogy in this verse. Peter compares our suffering in trials to refining of gold. That's a, that's a very helpful concept here. Uh, think about the refining of gold. How do you refine gold? Well, you heat it up, you melt it, and and once it's melted, you you take this tool and you scrape off the top layer, because that's where all the impurities rise. You you scrape the dross off the gold, and every time you do it, it gets more pure. So, So you keep melting it over and over again. You melt it, scrape it, melt it, scrape it, melt it, scrape it. You do it over and over again, and the more you do it, the closer you get to 24 karat gold, pure gold. Well, Peter's saying that's that's exactly how trials work in our lives. Trials refine us just like fire refines gold. As we go through these trials, they they melt us and they remove from us the impurities in our life, the things that that cause us not to walk in faith, the things that, that are not part of the walk of faith. Every time we go through trials, it removes a little bit more of the impurities in our lives and makes us more and more like pure gold, more and more like Jesus Christ. So this idea of proof, Peter's not saying you prove you're a Christian by rejoicing in trials. He's saying you refine and reveal pure gold, 24 karat faith through trials. When you rejoice in the midst of your trials, the result is that it refines your faith. It beautifies your faith. It perfects and matures your faith. So the first reason to rejoice in trials is is that's how you refine your faith. That's how you grow in your maturity. That's that's why Peter calls this process necessary. You may have noticed that word in verse 6. He says that trials are necessary in our lives. Why are they necessary? Well, because we only grow in spiritual maturity in the context of pain. Don't know if you've ever thought about that. But in a fallen world, human beings, we grow through pain. 
You don't grow in the likeness of Christ when things are easy. You grow when things are difficult. That's, that's really true in, in all areas of life in a fallen world. Now, that's not how God designed it. You turn back to Genesis 1 through 2 and you will see no pain. There, there is no pain. Adam and Eve would have grown in intimacy with God. They would have grown in knowledge of God, free from pain if they would have never eaten the apple. But they ate the apple Sin came into the world and close on the heels of sin was pain and suffering. And now all growth comes in the context of pain. You've seen that in many areas of your life. How do you grow muscles? How do you grow in physical strength? Well, you go to the gym and you break your muscles down. You intentionally cause yourself pain by lifting weights over and over again. It hurts when you're doing it. It hurts the next day. Why? Well, no pain, no gain. You, you can't develop your muscles. You can't grow your strength unless you go through pain. That's how growth works in life. You, you see that in the life of your kids. Our kids usually grow in the context of pain. Every three months or so, Julie and I pack up Luke and Gracie. We take them to the doctor's office for shots. We do it because we want them to grow in their immunity to disease. But uh, let me tell you, it, it's, it's not a pleasant process. It's actually a very painful thing for your kids. Now, if you don't have kids yet, let me tell you how to know if your child is really in pain. Because kids cry a lot. So how do you tell if if crying is really pain, if they're really in pain? Well, it's not actually from the cry. It's from the silence that precedes the cry. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. When it's really bad pain, nothing comes out of their mouths. For about a second or two, the shot goes in, their eyes get wide. They look at you like you've just betrayed them. They inhale this air. You just hear them, oh, and you know, oh my gosh, it's going to be so bad. <laughs> it's going to be awful. Everybody in this office is going to hear my kid shriek. It's coming. There it is. Boom. And, and you know, my child is really in pain. So why do we do it? Why do we allow our children to go through such pain? Well, it's not because we enjoy them being in pain. No, when they're in pain, we're in pain. You know, when, that, when your child's sitting on the doctor's table screaming from getting a shot, you don't feel good. No, you feel this part of you inside. It feels like you're dying. You're all tensed up. You feel horrible. And, and again, the worst part of it, it's not the shriek. It's the look of betrayal in their eyes. You feel horrible for what you've done. You wish so badly that you could take the shot for them. That would be a lot less pain. Doc, just, just stick me, doc, because that's a lot less pain than me having to hear my kids shriek. We hate giving them shots, but we do it because we know the benefit is worth the price. We allow our kids to undergo the pain of shots because we know the growth and immunity is worth the price. It's worth the pain. And that's exactly how God sees pain in our lives. That's exactly how he sees suffering in our lives. He sees it as necessary. He sees it as needed. When when you look at at God in scripture, you see that the pain and suffering in our lives, it never surprises God. He's still sovereign over the universe, and yet God never rejoices in human pain. You'll never see any place in the Bible where he rejoices when his children are in pain. God doesn't rejoice in our pain. He grieves with us in pain. God grieves when you are in pain. You see that in the life of Jesus. God in human flesh, he comes to earth, and at some point in his ministry, uh, his good friend Lazarus dies. And how does Jesus respond? He weeps. Now, Jesus is God. He knew all the good stuff that was about to come from Lazarus' death. He even knew that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's not going to be dead for long. And yet still, seeing the grief of Lazarus' family, Jesus weeps. 
He's showing us how God responds to pain. He does not celebrate our pain. He is not uncaring about our pain. God grieves with us when we're in pain. But like a good father, he knows the benefits that come from pain are worth the cost. The good that comes in your life when your faith is refined is worth the pain and suffering you go through. Peter tells us the the refining of our faith, the proving of our faith, it's more valuable than pure gold. Most valuable substance on earth, faith is better than that. A a demonstrated, refined, proven life of faith, there is nothing more valuable in the world than that. That's why God allows you to go through suffering and pain. Because the benefit you receive by responding in joy to pain is worth the price. Now, I, I feel like God has been teaching me this lesson, especially in the last year since I've become a dad. Since Luke and Gracie have entered my life, I've had these these moments, and, and dads, you can probably identify with me. I, I've had these moments where it has it it suddenly um, come, become apparent to me uh, the weight of my new responsibility. I've had these moments where, where I've seen that um, my children's view of God as their father will be based on how I treat them as father. My deficiencies, my failures as a father will have a lifelong impact on my children's ability to relate to God as their father. That's heavy stuff. That weighs upon me. That's serious responsibility. It's a little bit terrifying to think about. And so there's these moments when God opens my eyes to see how sinful I am, to see how immature I am. And in those moments, I fall on my knees before God and I say, God, I am so afraid that my failures, my sins are gonna cause this long-term detriment in the life of my children. Please, God, I can't even stomach the thought of that. Please, God, do whatever it takes to grow me into the father that Luke and Gracie need me to be. Do whatever it takes. Bring any pain, any trial into my life because the the cost of that pain is worth the price of growing to be the father that Luke and Gracie need. That's what's going on here. God is saying the most valuable thing in your life is growth in faith, growth in your walk with Jesus Christ. That is worth the price of pain. That growth in faith, it only comes through pain. It only comes through suffering. God didn't want it to be that way. It's that way because of our sin, but because of that we should be willing to suffer with joy because our suffering with joy brings growth. It refines our faith. It matures us. It develops in us a 24-carat faith, a faith that is beautiful, a faith that is mature, a faith that is a blessing to others. That's the first reason we rejoice when we suffer because we know as we rejoice in suffering, our faith is refined and faith is the most valuable thing we have. It's the first reason Peter lays out for us to rejoice in suffering Second reason is also found in verse 7, but it's the end of verse 7. As we suffer with joy, what is the long-term result? Well, so that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation of Jesus Christ, that's talking about that moment in time in the future when Jesus returns to earth. It's his second coming when he establishes his kingdom over the earth. At that point, if we have suffered with joy, the result is praise, glory, and honor. Now, now for who? Is that praise, glory, and honor for Jesus or for us? Well, Peter doesn't specify because it's both. It's actually a very biblical idea. If we join in the sufferings of Jesus Christ in this life, If we suffer with joy, then we will join in his glory in the life to come. 
You see that pattern throughout the book of 1 Peter. To the extent that you join in the sufferings or share in the sufferings of Christ now, you will share in the glory of Christ to come. That's actually found throughout the whole New Testament, throughout the whole Bible. Let me show you a couple places where that idea comes out. Romans 8, 16, and 17, Paul says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. What Paul is saying here is that everyone who is a child of God, that that happens through faith in the gospel. You believe the gospel, you become a child of God. Everyone who's a child of God is an heir of God. That means that we will all receive an inheritance from God. That's the idea there. We studied that last week. All believers have an inheritance reserved for them in heaven. But Peter's talking about something more here, and so is Paul. Not only does God have an inheritance for you, but if you share in the sufferings of Christ with joy in this life, then you also get to share in Christ's inheritance in the next life. You get not only your own inheritance, but you get to share in Jesus' inheritance. You get to share in his glory. If you suffer now with joy, you are glorified then. You share in his sufferings now, you share in his glory then. Same idea is brought out in the book of 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 17, Paul says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul's saying our suffering now, this momentary light affliction that we suffer now, it's producing something. There is a result that comes from it in the future, and that is an eternal weight of glory. Now, it's, it's interesting the language Paul uses here. First thing to notice, uh, momentary light affliction. What for Paul was light affliction? Well, stoning, beating, shipwreck, and death. That, that was light affliction in Paul's mind. Why is it light? Well, it's light in comparison to the glory that results from it. Notice also Paul says that affliction, it's momentary. Now, Paul wasn't saying it lasts a few days. He's saying this life is momentary. Peter brings out the the same idea back in verse six. He said, even though now for a little while, You've been distressed by trials for a little while. The the longest that you're going to suffer trials in this life is 70, 80, 90 years, and then they're done. 70, 80, 90 years, that feels long to us, but it's really not. That's but a vapor compared to all of eternity. You suffer for an incredibly short time, then you share in the glory of Jesus Christ forever. That's Paul's and Peter's point. Uh, The suffering we go through now, it's momentary. It's light compared to the eternal weight of glory that we will receive as a reward if we suffer with joy. So why rejoice in your sufferings? Because you know that to the extent you share in the sufferings of Christ now, you share in his glory in the future. God has a great reward in store for you if you will suffer with joy. Third reason that Peter gives us for suffering with joy is found in verses 8 and 9. Let's pick it up in verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This is very similar to verse 6. Peter's describing the the ideal. He's describing what he hopes for us, that, that we will greatly rejoice in the midst of our trials. And here's the result. If you will suffer with joy, verse 9 obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now let's, let's look at verse 9 in detail here. Let's study the parts. Obtaining, that verb in Greek, it means to receive something that has been earned. Obtaining isn't getting a gift. It's, it's getting a wage. It's, it's recompense. And Peter uses the present tense. He says, we're constantly obtaining. We're constantly receiving this thing that we have earned. 
And this thing, it comes to us as a result of faith. Again, it's not just belief, it's the whole walk of faith. It's walking with Jesus, enjoying the midst of trials. The result is that we are constantly obtaining what? The salvation of your souls. It's kind of a tricky phrase. It's actually found a lot, not in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. Here's some in the New Testament, a ton in the Old Testament. This is a very Old Testament phrase. That's where Peter's getting the idea. Uh, an example passage for you of what this phrase means. It's Proverbs 13.3. Solomon says, The one who guards his mouth preserves his life, literally in Hebrew, saves his soul. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. So what does it mean in, in Proverbs 13 to save your soul? Uh, it, it's not about getting to heaven. It's about preserving your life from destruction, preserving your life from the ruin of sin. That's the idea here. If you guard your mouth, you protect your life from the ruin of sin and folly. That's exactly what Peter has in mind back in 1 Peter 1. That's the idea he's bringing out. This this salvation of our souls that God is constantly giving us, it is deliverance from sin. It's deliverance from the ruin of sin. You see, we, we need God's deliverance. When we face trials, what, what's your natural response when you suffer? What's the natural response of all human beings to suffering? Well, uh, a few options. When we suffer, we either get angry at God, or we doubt God, or we run from God into the numbing hands of entertainment and pleasure and possessions. That's, that's the way that human beings work. When human beings suffer pain, they either get angry, or they doubt, or they run away. That's the natural response that all human beings have to suffering. If you're left to yourself, if God leads you to your own strength and power, that's how you'll respond to trials. We all will. We'll either get angry, we'll doubt, or we'll run away. That's why we need God's deliverance. We need his constant salvation in our lives, delivering us from our natural tendency towards anger, doubt, escapism. We need him to rescue us in the midst of our trials and give us victory. Give us the ability to walk in faith, to rejoice. Well, that salvation is available moment by moment every day to the believer who chooses to rejoice who chooses, even if they don't feel thankful, to be thankful to God. If you choose that, then God will constantly, moment by moment, he will reach down into your life and place his supernaturally powerful salvation in your life. He will give you deliverance against your natural tendency towards anger, doubt, and escapism. He will give you victory in the midst of your trials. That's the third reason to rejoice in trials, because that's the only way to experience God's salvation at work in my life today. This present salvation, delivering me from the ruin of sin, it comes to the believer who chooses to rejoice in the midst of trials. That's reason number three, to rejoice in our trials because we experience as a result God's continual deliverance in our lives. Fourth and final reason is found in verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now that, that passage kind of seems like a rabbit trail, doesn't it? doesn't really seem to fit into this whole subject of suffering. What's Peter doing here? Well, uh, he's, he's not going down a rabbit trail. Actually, verses 10 through 12 are, are the crowning point of his argument. This is the high point of his whole argument in this passage. What Peter is telling us is, is a fourth reason to rejoice in suffering. It's because you recognize how privileged you are. 
Rejoice in suffering because you recognize that even in the midst of pain and suffering, you are one of the most privileged beings who has ever existed. Now, who is Peter talking about here? He's talking about those who have heard and believed the gospel. So he talks about verse 12, those who have received the gospel, those who have heard and believed the good news that Jesus Christ suffered for us, that he suffered in our place, that he took our sins upon himself and died in our place. Uh, Peter's talking about those who have been saved, those who have received this free gift of salvation through faith. That's, that's the great news of the gospel. You can receive this infinitely valuable gift of salvation if you simply believe that Jesus suffered in your place, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. The moment that you believe that truth, you receive the infinitely valuable gift of salvation from God. And that gift makes you one of the most privileged creatures in all of God's creation. When you receive that gift of salvation, you become more privileged than any of the Old Testament prophets, according to this passage. All the Old Testament prophets, they lived before the death and resurrection of Jesus. As a result, they did not have access to the gifts of the new covenant that you enjoy. They didn't have the Holy Spirit living within them. They didn't have the life of Jesus to look back at and imitate. They didn't have access to nearly as good a life as you do. That means that all of the really blessed guys in the Old Testament, guys like Abraham, Moses, David, really blessed guys, they don't have it as good as us. We have it better than them because we live after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But not only are we more privileged by God than anyone who lived in the Old Testament, we're also more privileged than the angels. Did you catch that at the end of verse 12? Angels are are powerful. Angels have face-to-face access to God. Angels live free of sin. And yet, angels long to experience what you have experienced through the salvation that Christ earned for you. Angels long to see what you have seen in your relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus died for us. He suffered for us. He did not die for them. They do not have access to the death of Christ. They do not have access to this infinitely valuable gift of salvation. You do. You are more privileged than the angels. What Peter is helping us to understand here is even in the midst of our trials, even when we suffer, even when we're in pain, still we are among the most privileged beings to ever walk the face of this earth because of what Christ has done for us. This gift of salvation that he has given us makes us among the most privileged beings to ever exist. Now, that really speaks to me in the midst of my trials. When I'm suffering, when I'm in pain, this reality reminds me that in the midst of my pain, I am not a victim. And, and I did not draw the short straw from God's hand. And, and I'm not unlucky. And, and I've not been forgotten by God. No, in the midst of my pain and suffering, no matter how intense it is, yet still I am a son of God and that makes me among the most privileged creatures to ever exist in this universe. We are incredibly privileged. Our pain, our suffering doesn't change that fact. That helps us to rejoice in the midst of trials. Yes, you suffer. Yes, there is pain in this life, and yet that doesn't change the fact that because Christ suffered for you, because he died for you, you have more privilege than any person living in the Old Testament. You have more privilege than the angels themselves. We are among the most privileged beings to ever exist. And that kind of leads us to our application this morning. We're going to face trials throughout this life. This life is hard. It's full of pain. It's full of suffering. That's just the reality of living in a fallen world. 
When you face trials, you have two choices. You can do what comes natural. You can do what comes naturally to you. You can respond to the trial and and get angry at God or, or doubt God or run from God in the numbing hands of entertainment or pleasure or possessions. That's what comes naturally to human beings. But that choice leads to an empty life, an unsatisfying life, an insignificant life. So don't choose that option. Choose a second option. Choose to rejoice. Now again, that's not about an emotion. It's not about how you feel. It's a choice you make to say to God, God, I believe that I am blessed. Even though all my circumstances say otherwise, I choose to believe that I'm blessed. I choose to be thankful to you in the midst of this trial. That's the right choice to make. No matter what trial you face, you might be here this morning and you are suffering from loneliness. You feel so incredibly lonely in this life. Or or you may be suffering the loss of a loved one. You grieve over that loss. Or or you may be suffering from from some physical ailment, a chronic disease, pain that won't go away. Or, Or you have incredible spiritual suffering right now. You are fighting against a temptation that just seems to own you. You're struggling so hard against it. Or maybe you're suffering emotional stress. You've lost a job. You've, your finances are in bad shape. You're worried about school or, or all of the above. Many of us in this room are, are in pain right now. We're suffering trial right now. And for those of us who are not suffering, it's coming. It's the reality of life in a fallen world. We will suffer trials throughout this life, a variety of trials. No matter what trials you suffer, the response is always the same. Choose to rejoice. Choose to be thankful for the life that God has given you. If you will do that, if you will choose to be thankful, if you will choose to rejoice, then God will use your joy in the midst of suffering to refine your faith. He will grow and purify your walk of faith. There's nothing more valuable in all of life than that. And he will respond to your joy and suffering by accumulating for you eternal reward. You will get to share in the glory of Jesus Christ when he returns. And he will respond to your rejoicing and suffering by continually giving you his supernatural deliverance, continually strengthening you and saving you from sin. And finally, he reminds us, no matter how badly we suffer, we are still the most privileged creatures to ever walk the face of this earth because of what Christ did for us. So let's go before the Lord and let's thank him for what he's done for us, that he makes it possible to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Heavenly Father, you know the hearts of every person in this room. You know what we suffer. You know what things have caused us pain. You know where every person is this morning. You know those among us who are right now in pain. And Father, we we thank you that you grieve with us. We thank you that you comfort us. We thank you that you love us. Father, we thank you most of all that because of your son's suffering on our behalf, it is possible for us to rejoice in the midst of trials. It's possible for us to have joy even when we're in pain because of the gift of salvation that Jesus has made possible for us. Lord, thank you so much that as a great and good and loving Heavenly Father, you use our trials to refine our faith, to grow us in the likeness of Jesus. Thank you that you you work in us for salvation. You constantly deliver us from the temptation of sin. You pull us back from the precipice of anger and doubt and escape. You pull us close to you. Thank you for that, Lord. And thank you that in the future you will reward us. We're not worthy of that, Lord. We're so grateful. You will give us the privilege of sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ if now we willingly share in his sufferings. So please, Father, find worthy hearts in us. Please work in us to make us willing to rejoice in the midst of our trials. 
Please challenge and convict each and every one of us. Help us, Lord, to apply this passage. I pray that we would become a congregation of people who genuinely, constantly rejoice even in the midst of suffering. That we would choose to be thankful even if we don't feel it. Lord, help us to grow through the power of your spirit. We pray that all this in the name of your son who suffered and died for us. In his name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. See you next week.